Good morning. A happy first Sunday of Advent. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I'm very encouraged to see uh, several uh, little theologians uh, here this morning. Thank you for being here. Of course, you had to be here. But maybe some of you actually like uh, the morning. That would be odd. Uh, I don't particularly care for the morning, but I'm glad to see you here, little theologians. Uh, Listen to me real carefully. Uh, I'd like for you to work for me uh, in this passage. You hear the passage, you hear me preach. I'd like for you to work for me on a drawing of of a tree. There's a tree in my neighbor's uh, backyard, and I can see it from my backyard, and it's really leaning ever since the tornado. And when it rains, it seems to to my eyes to lean just a little bit more. Now, my neighbor's not worried about it at all. I'm very concerned about it. But draw for me a tree that's leaning ever so closely to the ground under the weight of water. You're going to be hearing a lot of Old Testament passages. And here at Covenant, at your church, it's very important that we understand that the entire Old Testament is leaning to Jesus, bending down, touching right where Jesus will be born. That's what we believe about the Old Testament. Work on that tree as we look at passages from the Old Testament. Uh, as, uh, as you'll notice, uh, we are spending some time during the season of Advent in the Old Testament, but you'll also notice out in a foyer a white guide. It's a guide to Advent readings. Uh, the passages that you hear during our services, so for instance, the New Testament passage that uh, Pastor Molinax read from, a very familiar passage about John the Baptist, uh, the passage that you uh, heard uh, read by uh, the steers, uh, at the Advent wreath. Uh, each Sunday, these passages, passages that you hear, they're all put together in that Advent reading guide, and you can be prepared for those uh, passages, or you can carry those passages with you uh, into the week. Uh, that guide is the story of redemption, including the first as well as the second Advent of our Lord. So please take one of those if you haven't uh, already. Our passage is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Would you join me in prayer before we read this passage? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being with us this morning, here, present, as your people gather together. You have promised to nourish and feed them, to care for them, to guide them. By your Holy Spirit, would you do that as we spend time in your word? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, our passage is from Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of our Lord. I wonder if just hearing that passage, you uh, heard these uh, little uh, glimmers, tokens, as it were, of beauty, of of gentleness, of tenderness. Uh, But even as you heard that, you are also left a little bit confused. I mean, it's an ancient text, and it's poetry, and and it seems to jump around a bit. There seems to be different uh, speakers and different audiences So beautiful, but still just a little bit confusing. I wonder if that's how we're looking at our world today. We know that God is with us. We know that God is sovereignly in charge of everything, not just inside of us, but everything uh, around us, not just generically speaking over the globe, as it were, but actually in charge of our country, what we're going through right now. So we believe that, but we don't see much of it. And there's a bit of a similar feeling with uh, that uh, in comparison to hearing this passage from Isaiah 40. It's beautiful, tender, lovely, but a little bit confusing. Well, that may be as we look around at 2020, but let's not make the mistake of thinking that we live in a world in which the divine is temporarily paused, in which God, who ordinarily looks at us uh, with a straight gaze, is now looking at us with sidelong glances. God is here. He is in charge. And when we look at this passage, we're thinking about the first advent, the coming of Jesus in his birth, but also the second advent, that great consummation of all things when uh, that uh, kingdom is revealed very clearly to the entire world. We know that God is here, active, ruling. We believe that as Christians. We know it's true from his word. We also know that God makes himself known, that God doesn't hide away in corners waiting to be discovered by our pathetic little pen lights and our curiosity. God makes himself known. And this passage really takes us to this great uh, beholding. Behold your God. The passage uh, seems to get brighter and brighter over the duration of the verses. God, he makes himself known. And he makes himself known so that you might behold him for your comfort. That's really what the passage is about. Makes himself known that you might behold him for your comfort. But there's also this. During the season of Advent, I want you to hear that if you don't behold him for your comfort, then you will behold him for your discomfort. He makes himself known. He doesn't wait for you to discover him. And if you don't behold him for your comfort, in his second coming, you will behold him for your discomfort. These are the only two options. 
The passage begins in just uh, two quick verses, uh, almost as if these two verses are a bit of a conference room, a a private discussion, a discussion in which there's some kind of uh, divine entourage that's in a room and making big decisions, talking about really deep things, and we have an opportunity then to uh, tilt our ears towards the crack in the door. Or we might think of that great big tree that's filled with water and it's leaning, that Old Testament tree, and we get these little drips of water as we listen through the crack in the door. Uh, R.C. Sproul says that verses 1 and 2 are a a heavenly uh, conference. Uh, It may be that here we have this speaking of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or uh, God speaking uh, before uh, all of His angels, or or speaking before His angels as well as the prophets who have uh, gone before. could be that Isaiah is elevated into this uh, heavenly discussion, but verses uh, 1 and 2, they're verses of God's speech that we get to overhear. And God's speech is about intimacy, comfort, comfort. Imagine that. God, the maker of the cosmos, comfort, comfort. And then addressing a body of people by calling them my people and calling himself your God. There's something in these first two verses that speak of great intimacy with God. Intimacy that he has for us that he would desire to comfort us. And the comfort isn't just warm fuzzies like a a greeting card. God's speech in verses 1 and 2 is really confident. There's this threefold assertion that God makes in this heavenly court that we get to hear, as it were, by water uh, dripping from that tree. Tell Jerusalem that warfare is ended. That image of warfare, misery. God is saying, Tell Jerusalem the misery's done. That's this great, confident assertion of peace, but there's more. Tell Jerusalem that her iniquity, her guilt, it's pardoned, it's satisfied, and in my eyes, she's innocent. Not only that, tell Jerusalem this, that all punishment, that my very wrath, that it's doubled. You see that in verse 2. Isn't that confusing? I believe the best way to understand doubled is exact. That God's punishment and wrath has been exactly dealt with in its exact amount, exactly paid for. And now there's nothing between me and my people. The punishment, it's taken care of. And so uh, there is uh, this uh, great uh, comfort uh, that comes by way of God guaranteeing the peace of his people, guaranteeing the innocence of his people, and then guaranteeing the closeness with his people. Now, there's some pretty massive problem solving that's happening in these first two verses. There's some decision making. There's some uh, assertive designs. There's a purpose here. What Jerusalem needs is completed. I've given every everything. I've provided everything. There are people who are without peace, without innocence, and separated by punishment, but it's over. It's done. And say to her, comfort, comfort. Wow. It's hard to tell the immediate audience of these first uh, two verses. To be sure, Isaiah is hearing this 
And in fact, these words of comfort that are uh, guaranteed by God himself, these words of comfort, they're uh, heard uh, through the ages. Uh, God's work is for a people who need this comfort, and God is the one who provides that real and lasting comfort. Uh, There is intimacy here, but there's also confidence of assertion, confidence of God's plan. Uh, This entire speech, as it were, in verses 1 and 2, hinges upon God's character alone. Christianity says that it's very important that we hear and believe what's happening in this room. Christianity uh, recognizes that God doesn't wait for us to pay attention to Him, that God meddles in our lives, that He advents into space and time, and that as God comes, God comes to bring comfort. He's the only one that can do that. And we see this in verses 1 and 2, but we hear it in three scenes that follow. You may not have time to do that now, but in verse 3 and in verse 6 and in verse 9, there's a voice that comes. It's this this dramatic uh, promise of God bringing uh, comfort, of God bringing uh, this uh, peace uh, and this this, uh, closeness uh, and this pardon. Uh, That promise is given voice by God himself, and uh, we hear three uh, aspects of that voice. If you look starting at verse 3, I think what we hear is we hear the first voice, which is a voice of accessibility. you got to listen here. God's talking, making uh, his divine plan known. This voice, this voice of accessibility that begins in verse 3 is a voice that tells us who we are. We're a wilderness people. In the Old Testament, uh, this image is an image of people who have been uh, deserted, homeless, uh, people living in an abandoned city, uh, people of the wasteland. One of the negative critiques, by the way, of Christianity, I've heard this, maybe you have, is that Christianity is meant for people who are weak. Christianity is meant for those kind of people who uh, haven't the means of uh, lifting themselves up out of the wreck of their lives. There are people who are just desperate. They can't make it work. That's who Christianity is for. It's not a critique. It's a positive statement. That's exactly what Christianity is for. It's for those who are in a wasteland, who need God's great help. And God, in verse 3, he's provided a highway. I still, to this day, think it's very strange that the word highway would show up in the Bible. I love cars. It's almost too good to be true. Highways in the Bible. In the Old Testament, this uh, word uh, it refers to a, a very wide and a, and a much-used way or road. And so for God to make a highway is to make himself very accessible. I mean, look at verse 3. It's not windy, it's straight. And in verse 4, valleys, they're actually lifted up. Uh, mountains and hills are made low. Uneven ground is level and debris is scooped out of the way. And just as God is the only one who can, who can perform that which is necessary for our comfort, peace, innocence, closeness, only God can do that. That's that counsel of one and two. So too is God the only one who can provide accessibility to that work. We can't save ourselves, but neither can we access him on our own. How does God make this highway? 
Well, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all point to this passage and they tell us that the making of that great highway is done through the work of John the Baptist. He is the one who Isaiah is talking about. His voice is that voice of accessibility. We just have to wait for 700 years or so to hear it. John tells us that the ground is leveled by the appearance of Jesus. He's there. And the passage that we heard earlier in this service we hear the angel Gabriel telling John the Baptist's father that this son will go before Jesus in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Elijah is the first notable prophet of the monarchy. And if you look at the very last two verses of the Old Testament, do this when you go home. The last two verses of the Old Testament, the last writing prophet Malachi, he says there that we are to expect another Elijah. And Gabriel says John will make ready for the Lord a people who were prepared. God sends John into that wilderness to point to Jesus. If you look in other passages in Isaiah about what this highway looks like or or maybe like the signs on the highway, how the highway uh, actually uh, works, we find some information there. Uh, God, he makes himself accessible. He does everything that is necessary, not only for our comfort, but for our accessibility to that comfort. He does everything necessary. But in Isaiah 57, we learn that that highway works in this way. The highway is meant for those who are contrite of lowly spirit. The highway is meant to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You know, this was really the thundering offense of John the Baptist. We know this about his ministry. He wasn't received well a lot of times. John the Baptist was continually telling people that they needed to humble themselves, that they needed to repent. It's how the highway works. You need to give up. You need to come with a heart of humility. You need to recognize your lostness in the wasteland of the wilderness. It's how the highway works. God, he makes himself accessible. And he lays a flat road of humility before you. Will will you travel that road? And the second voice begins in verse 6. I mean, there you see it's clear. The word voice, it shows up again. And that second voice is the voice of this hard reality. This is the kind of voice where it's not John the the Baptist that's preaching. It's really Isaiah himself. You look at uh, verse 6 and there's a question, what shall I cry? I believe that's Isaiah's voice. What shall I cry? You go back to when Isaiah was first called to ministry. He's that kind of prophet. He's the kind of prophet that's always asking God uh, what exactly he means by what he says. And so Isaiah here in this second voice, a voice of a hard reality, is reminding us that Christianity is not only meant for people in the wilderness, but Christianity is meant for people who are very, well, they're very limited. You know, when Isaiah was first called to ministry, you remember what God told him. God said, you know, watch it. You're going out to speak to a people who have dull hearts, heavy ears, and blind eyes. Those are the people you're going out to speak to. And here he says it again to Isaiah. Isaiah, you're going to go out and speak to a people who are like grass, like flowers. They wither. They fade. And they need to hear this. The humans are wonderfully made. 
I think you see a hint of that in verse 6. Humans are full of beauty or glory or splendor, delight, whatever, uh, whatever God means there. They're full of wonder, but they're limited. They're temporal. Their bodies, they decay. And they're dependent. The wind blows them. They don't blow the wind. These are exactly the kind of people, Isaiah, you're called to preach to. That's, how you, that's who you are and that's who I am. And we all feel this, we ought to feel this, not just in terms of death and decay, we're, we're all of us, each of us slowly dying. But we ought to feel our uh, inability to 100% guarantee our own peace and happiness. You try as you might, the Bible tells us that you cannot guarantee your own peace and happiness. You can't do it. And we know this, don't you know that? Your plans, they don't always work out. Things do go sideways, and it happens often. Uh, Things that happen uh, uh, that are opposed to your plan happen all the time. Isaiah says, you know, God's not like this. His word, the word of our God in verse 8, well, his word will stand forever. And this is not just a reference to the Bible. This is a reference to all of God's plans, all of God's purposes. Even when you jump back to verses 1 and 2, God's plan to bring us comfort, comfort. Well, that plan will stand forever. Peter, he goes to this very verse to say that God, he is reliable, you can trust him. But the verse is saying even more than that. The verse is saying that God is absolutely unavoidable. This is the hard reality of this voice in verses 6 through 8. God, he's this great meddler. He comes after you. You must deal with him. Do you remember playing tag as a little kid? Do you remember that? And when you play tag, there's always someone in the group who just runs at the speed of light. Some guy, some girl. They're always there. I mean, maybe that's you. But they're always there, and they're going to get you one way or another. You're you're playing tag, and you got Usain Bolt there. There's nothing you can do about it. You're going to get caught. That's God. This voice of hard reality is that you'll die, and that your plans never give 100% accuracy, and your plans are never everlasting. But God, he's meddling with you. He's unavoidable, and you have this voice of a hard reality. There's a third voice. There's a voice of accessibility, the voice of John the Baptist, the the voice of a man who's pointing to Jesus. This is him. And then there's this voice of a hard reality that Isaiah is preaching. You can't do it. You are decaying. And then there's this voice. There's this voice in which we're reminded of something that the church remembers, but those outside the church don't quite get. Verses 9 through 11 is the voice of invitation, an invitation that on the authority of God is offered by the church body. This voice, the ESV says, is heralded. It's a funny word. It's not technically there in the Greek. A herald is someone whose job it is to bring good tidings. That's what the King King James Version says. These uh, Christians, they're bringers of good tidings. Uh, This voice you can see there in verse 9, it's a voice that's worth uh, making known to a large public. Go up to a high mountain. It's a voice that's worth being made known loudly. Lift up your voice with strength or lift up your voice with a shout. And it's a voice that's worth being made with great courage. Again, verse 9. Nine, lift up you lift up the voice fear not there's a couple of ways to understand this 
Church is called to make this invitation, this announcement of this comfort, comfort that only God can bring, this announcement of Jesus Christ who is a way to that comfort, this announcement that uh, you uh, in your wisdom and your vaunted knowledge haven't the ability to escape your dependence. This voice can actually be heard in a couple of different ways. On the one hand, the good news is everything that God has done to bring us comfort. It's the peace that he brings. It is the innocence that he brings. It's the closeness that he brings. All of this through a son, that's comfort, comfort. On the one hand, that's, well, that's the good news. That's what the church heralds. But on the other hand, this good news is simply the very character of who God is. God, the great I am. Look at verse 9. Behold your God. This is God. This is what we have a delight to share with the world. This is the voice of the gospel. Not just what God has done, but who God is, the great I am. There is none other. Not out there and not in here. Now this is a bit tricky, I believe. He comes to us according to his highway, flattening the ground in John the Baptist who points out Jesus. John the Baptist, he uses that word behold. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's this one who brings peace, this one who brings innocence, this one who brings closeness to God. He is comfort. And so the way this highway works is that you would come to Jesus humbly as a wilderness soul who sees your own dependence in the face of God's great oneness, I amness, glory, independence. And if you don't behold God in this way, well, he's actually not your God. Behold your God. You see, this is why I've called this sermon anticipation. The Christian knows very well that God has come in Jesus of Nazareth and that he has come, according to verse 10, uh, with might, ruling over all, with the very spoils of victory. The Christian knows that Jesus is their only comfort in life, the doorway to peace and to innocence before God and closeness with him. The Christian knows that Jesus is the great shepherd who cares for them, who even lays down his life for them and who holds them in his arms, carries them gently, leads them in this life. And the Christian uh, still anticipates even more. Jesus has come, but Isaiah and John the Baptist have alerted us. We behold him, but not just now. We anticipate him in the future. He will come again, and he'll make all of those things that we believe, well, he'll, he'll make them far richer. This is what the Christian believes. God makes makes himself known, and you may behold him for your comfort, but you might also not. And that maybe you here this morning, maybe you here presently or through our live stream, and you need to hear that if you don't behold him as your God for your comfort, well, that's the same thing as beholding him for your discomfort. 
You've beheld him. He's come. God has made himself known. He is offering himself as your comforter, as a savior from the wasteland of your soul, as your never withering glory, as your shepherd who will care for you and love you, your shepherd who will bring you comfort. He offers himself to you, revealing himself. He's done that in the first coming. But if you don't behold him as your comforter now, then your anticipation of a second coming, well, it ought to strike fear because he will come again. And Christians, we anticipate that coming again uh, where we'll uh, see the glory of God on the face of Jesus and all of our doubts will just dissolve. But this is the season of Advent. And I believe the church in verses 9 through 11 will be given a message to proclaim courageously, loudly on a, on a mountaintop. And that message is the offer of comfort, but it's also a message of anticipating the second coming of Jesus. He will come again. Have you beheld him? Have you? I'm going to ask that each and every Sunday of Advent. What a ripe opportunity. Christians delighting in the first coming excited about the second coming, pay attention if you don't delight in him. He will come again. He will come again. Welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for being our comfort, and thank you for making that comfort known to us, a comfort accomplished in Jesus, a comfort made known in Jesus. Would you sustain us until a second coming and those who have not taken comfort in him now, would you draw them to yourself that they would before his second coming? In Jesus' name, amen.